Well, let me take a moment before we turn directly to the passage that has just been read for us to allow you to adjust to what is probably clearly not a North Dallas accent this evening, (laughs) and to say to Mark Davis especially how much I appreciate the privilege of being present at this service and being able to meditate together with you on this marvelous passage that uh, he or others have assigned to me with what I think is a very beautiful title, you would notice, not one that I think I could have managed to devise, The King's Table. So many marvelous things happen at the table your great American Thanksgiving dinners, unparalleled family occasions with powerful memories. For those of you whose children are scattered as mine are throughout the globe, those very rare occasions when you're able to join together again and remember again how things used to be and how you used to think day in and day out, laboring with the children. And then as they are spread abroad, you would give anything for one of those days back. And if we have that kind of sensitivity, then I think we understand the spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ as He comes to the King's table. It is actually the table He first of all desired When you read through the passage in Matthew's gospel, it almost becomes difficult to understand that Jesus had earlier said to His disciples, with great desire, I have desired to celebrate this Passover with you. Here in the room is Simon Peter, who will deny Him. Here in the room, whose feet the Lord Jesus will wash, is Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. And yet what is obvious in the Gospels is that this is the table that the king desired. A number of years ago, my week in ministry began standing at the side of a road, holding in my arms a teenage son as he saw the helpless body of his mother lying in the street as the result of a traffic accident. And there proceeded what for us as a church family was undoubtedly one of the darkest weeks of my own ministry and our congregation's life, a sense of invasion from outside into our church family. The following Lord's Day, we had in the ordinary course of the church life the celebration of the Lord's Supper. And as it happened, the text in the ordinary course of exposition was Jesus' words, with great desire, I have desired to eat this meal with you. And I think for the very first time in my life, I felt, I think I'm beginning to understand what He meant. The sense of almost overwhelming desolation that was coming upon our Lord Jesus Christ that from one point of view, you might think would drive him into a desire for loneliness, 
was actually driving him into a desire for company, for stability, and for, in this instance, the celebration of the Passover, the reminder, the annual reminder with his disciples of that great redemptive event of the Old Testament Scriptures, when God had brought His people out of the land of bondage, out of the house of Egypt, and sent them on their way into the promised land. And when they had eaten the Passover lamb, when they had shared the bitter herbs, Jesus did something utterly unexpected. He transformed the celebration of the Passover into the first celebration of the Lord's Supper, which we together will in a few minutes taste. And in that event, He explained to His disciples the inner meaning of this new feast as He broke the bread and gave it to them, as He handed round the cup and urged them to drink from it. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, my blood poured out for many. These were men who probably their only education had been education in the Old Testament Scriptures, and so they would have instantaneously recognized the echoes of various passages in the Old Testament, most especially that passage from which we have already heard in song about the one who would be wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities who would pour out his soul unto death, whose sacrifice would lead to the salvation of many. And the great prophecy of Jeremiah 31, that in that event, God would be forging a new covenant that would bring about the forgiveness of their sins. And in these simple symbols, symbols other than the major symbols of the Passover. Jesus was saying, I give myself to you in love. We are very accustomed, I think, in the Western world to thinking about signs, but these signs had special power to these disciples. We have signs that indicates something that is far off and distant. If someone outside stood at the sign that said, Park City's Presbyterian Church this evening, you would have gone to them and said, that is just the sign. Come with me to the church family and the church fellowship. But there are other kinds of signs we employ, signs like the sign Jesus is employing here the sign of a mother taking the hand of her son and securing the little boy and communicating to him by that sign that he is safe with the one who loves him. The tentative reach out of the hand of a young man to a young girl with whom he has fallen in love and the sense of electricity he feels, as by that sign he points to something that is present, his newfound love for this young woman. 
or as a son sits at the bedside of his dying mother and presses her hand because she is no longer free to communicate with him, but by that sign, he says, and communicates to her, I love you with all my heart. And this is the meaning of these signs. Jesus is giving His hand to His disciples. Jesus is giving His kiss to His disciples. Jesus is giving His very self to His disciples and saying to them in this sign that we will soon receive, I love you with all my heart. I never began to love you because I have always loved you, and I will love you to the end. I will never cease to love you. Perhaps the best New Testament commentary on this passage is what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 5, when he says, the way we know that God loves us is never because things are going well for us, because when things go wrong for us, we will begin to doubt His love. The way we know God loves us is because Christ died for us. We have ways of measuring love. We measure love by the greatness of the lover, and the love in this case is the love of the Son of God for us. We measure love by the distance between the lover and the loved, and the distance here is the distance between heaven and hell. And we measure love by what the lover will sacrifice for the loved one. And this is why Paul says by way of commentary, God has proven His love to us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we were weak, Christ died for us. When we were helpless and ungodly, Christ died for us. And so, uh, we might say in the words that we were singing earlier on, this is the occasion, not when the disciples sing, my Jesus, I love Thee, I know Thou art mine, but when Jesus sings, my disciples, I love you, I know you are mine. And this has always been throughout history. We, we join with 2,000 years of history, Monday, Thursday after Monday, Thursday of men and women and young people in all places, at all times, at all stages, in all conditions, who have come together to hear again the Lord Jesus say to us through these simple signs, this is my hand in yours. This is my kiss upon your lips. These are my arms around your life. I love you. I love you. I love you. And yet, you know, when you read through this passage, you realize that the king's table has a kind of double entendre attached to it. There is the table at which our Lord Jesus sits with His twelve disciples and then with His eleven to say, I love you. And this we are told by Jesus Himself 
is the table the king desired. But as this passage goes on, you realize that as Jesus and the disciples make their way to the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus leaves eight at the edge of the garden and takes three and leaves them at the edge and then goes alone to the center of the garden, that there he is going to another table. He has spread a table for the disciples in the presence of his enemies, the table of the king, the table the king desired. But now he is approaching a table that is also prepared for the king. And in many ways, it is a table the king dreads. Of this event, Martin Luther once wrote, no man ever feared death like this man because no man ever faced the death that this man faces. And on this table lies not the the feast of the Passover, or even the bread and the wine of the Lord's Supper, but a solitary cup that has been placed there by His heavenly Father. And Matthew tells us, as the other gospel writers do, that his soul was filled with dread. This is the table he had long dreaded. This is the cup of which he had spoken before, that he knew the hour would come as we have read in this passage, the hour would come when his father would put into his hands this cup. And he knew the Old Testament well enough to know this cup. It was the cup of which the prophets had spoken, that anyone who drank it would feel desolate and deserted Indeed, when Mark describes this incident, he uses language that gives you a sense of such a shock coming to Jesus' humanity that it almost destabilizes him at the thought that it is his Father who is putting this cup into his hands. This Savior who has lovingly put the cup of salvation into the hands of His disciples is now being asked to reach up and take from His heavenly Father a cup of desolation, a cup, as the prophet said, that would make men stagger, a cup that would be filled with the desolation of the judgment and the wrath of God. And yet we must not misunderstand the Father for as the Father gives His Son the cup, and especially as the Son drinks the last dregs of this cup on the cross of Calvary, we can surely hear the echo of heaven as the Father quietly sings, My Jesus, I love you. I know you are mine. If ever I loved you, my Jesus, tis now. And the one note that we should not ignore in this passage is the note that all the gospel writers who describe this event record for us. Let me try and put it as simply as I can. Jesus told His Father that He did not desire to drink 
this cup. We must not gloss over that and rush on to His words, your will be done. Those words are prefaced by a nevertheless, not what I will. And this brings us, in a sense, to the great mystery of the gospel. This is the one place we might boldly say where it is made clear in the gospel that Jesus desired something that the Father would not grant Him. Father, if it is possible, take this cup from me. This is my desire. Unless we think that there is something strange about that, we must remember that it would be utterly impossible for holy humanity, the humanity of our Savior, for one moment to desire the experience of desolation and alienation from God. And this is the great mystery of the gospel. This is the great mystery of this insight Matthew gives us into the way in which our salvation is accomplished, that our Lord Jesus Christ is willing to do something that His holy humanity could never desire to experience because of His perfect love for His Father and His amazing love for us. In many ways, the clue to the events that take place in this garden is found in a much older garden, found in the Garden of Gethsemane, yes, but found in its secret in the Garden of Eden. We remember Adam and Eve were surrounded by trees that we are told were beautiful to look at and their fruit desirable to eat. And it's a very interesting thing that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that's described in the Garden of Eden is described in precisely the same terms in which Genesis indicates to us there was nothing about that tree that was poisonous in itself. There was nothing about that tree that distinguished it from any other tree except that God had said, like all these other trees, this tree is beautiful to behold and its fruit desirable to eat, and therefore you naturally have the same instinct to that tree as you have to all other trees, but show me that you love me for who I am, that you are willing to obey me because I am simply your heavenly Father, and I know what is best for you, and I mean to grow you and mature you. Do what you have no native instinct to do, and for my sake, do not eat the fruit of that tree. But they did. And what you see our Lord Jesus Christ doing in the Garden of Gethsemane is, as it were, bearing upon Himself our sinful condition and going right back to the beginning where Adam and Eve did what they naturally desired and in the process were disobedient to the Heavenly Father. 
and our Lord Jesus Christ is willing to do for us what it was impossible for holy humanity to desire, to taste desolation, to taste alienation from God, and to do it out of love for His heavenly Father and out of love for ourselves. And when we see that, we have come near to the heart of the gospel, haven't we? We've, we've come to see a picture that I think even a child could understand, that the Lord Jesus came into the world to take our place, to bear our burden, to take our guilt, to go back to the very root of our fallen human condition, and as it were, by taking the burden upon His shoulders, bear our sins upon the tree, die for us, rise again, and then come to us in risen power and say, I have taken and I did drink, and now you must take and you must drink. It's the message of the whole New Testament, isn't it? He did not have any sin, and yet He bore our sin. He became sin for us in order that we might become the righteousness of God. He became a curse for us in order that the blessing might flow to us. There was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only could unlock the gate. He unlocks the gate by going through the flaming swords back into the Garden of Eden. And there in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, Father, there is nothing in me that could ever desire any sense of separation from You, my loving Heavenly Father. Nevertheless, not my desire be done, but Your will be done. And friends, if there is anything that we can learn from this, it is the sheer greatness of the love of Jesus Christ and also lest we be in any doubt that there cannot be any other way of salvation. Would it not be a terrible thing to appear before the Heavenly Father? And when He says, did you receive My Son as your Savior, and say to Him, I found another way, and hear him say, do you not think if there was another way, I would have found it? There was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only could unlock the gate of heaven and let us in. And surely it's for this reason we want to praise him as our Savior. You know, one of the great figures of the 19th century in the Scottish church was a very eccentric professor of Hebrew, a man by the name of John Duncan, who was always called Rabbi Duncan. And as the Lord's Supper was being celebrated in the old Scottish tradition, he noticed that there was a lady around the table who had allowed the bread to pass by her, and she was weeping because she felt unworthy. 
And then he saw her allowing the cup to pass by her because she felt unworthy. And Rabbi Duncan rose from his place and took the cup and went round to the lady and said to her, Dear lady, take it. It's for sinners. And this is the message of the king's table, the table from which he desired to eat, the table which he dreaded the cup that lay on top. And because he exchanged the one for the other, the glory of the gospel is that it's possible for us also to exchange the one for the other. The desolation of our sin and our life without God and our waywardness and our lostness and know that He has taken God's judgment on our sin and He offers us the bread of His broken body and the wine of His shed blood. And he says to us, take, eat, take, drink. It's for sinners. No wonder the church in every age has responded as, by God's grace, we, may we each respond this evening. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we praise You for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, he became poor for our sakes, that we might become rich. And we pray as on this evening, we reflect on his passion and death, the agony of Gethsemane and the cross of Calvary. We may also rejoice in the forgiveness of our sins, in new life in Jesus Christ. And may as we praise Him for His marvelous grace, yield ourselves to Him, and indeed say, My Jesus, I love Thee. I know Thou art mine. For Thee all the pleasures of sin I resign. If ever I loved Thee, my Jesus, tis now. Write these words, we pray, upon our hearts for our Savior's sake. Amen.